You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. As we continue to send our most heartfelt prayers to President Jimmy Carter and his family, this morning we're hearing from the man who spent decades cutting the former president's hair. Jerry Carnes went to the barbershop Carter first visited long before he left Georgia for the White House. Soapies in downtown Americas is not like most barbershops. There aren't that many places in the world where you can get a haircut and buy produce in the same place. At Soapies, you can also sit in a chair, once occupied by a U.S. president. Somebody want like to see him, I says, come in here, I got President Carter in here getting his haircut. <laughs> he laughed. James Soapy Herndon opened his barbershop in 1960. Among his first customers was a peanut farmer from nearby Plains. That customer went from farmer to state senator to governor to president. Every time you saw him, he was just plain old Jimmy Carter. You know what I'm talking about. You know, he didn't, he didn't try, try that like he was big shot. For more than 50 years, Soapy Herndon counted the 39th president of the United States among his customers. The last time the two saw each other was in 2015, the year Jimmy Carter was diagnosed with brain cancer. When he got sick, he told me, that he's going to miss me, he's going to start getting his haircut there and right at home, you know. And I, I could understand that, you know. That was seven years ago. Now more than ever, Soapy Herndon is missing the customer who became a friend. When he opened in 1960, there were more than a dozen barber shops in downtown Americas. Soapy is all that's left now. He's a survivor, just like Jimmy Carter. He is tough. Good guy, he's tough. You can count Soapy Herndon among those who aren't ready to say goodbye. Good, good friend. He'd rather reminisce about the customer and friend who just happened to be president of the United States. In America's Jerry Carnes, 11 Alive News. When Jimmy Carter left the presidency, he was only 56 years of age, one of the younger former presidents. And he did not want to retire. He wanted to keep busy, to do things for the rest of his life. The first thing he did on coming back to Georgia and coming back to Plains was write his presidential memoirs and then get to work on establishing a center and a library for his post-presidency. So after a year, he came to an agreement with Emory University that he would be university distinguished professor there and in cooperation with Emory, establish the Carter Center. This would be an institution that would deal with conflict resolution but with all other issues of peace and human rights throughout the world. At first, he wanted to focus mostly on global affairs, on issues such as peace in the Middle East and arms control. But as time went on, he established a program, an active program called Global 2000, to 
bring healthcare to underdeveloped worlds. There were diseases that were not being treated. President Carter felt the Carter Center should not do what other organizations do, but should fill gaps, should fill vacuums. And so he looked for things that others were not doing or not doing well. And there were tropical diseases which were not being treated well throughout the world. In fact, one was a disease called guinea worm. And the Carter Center in 1986 took on a campaign to eradicate guinea worm. And to take on guinea worm was an enormous challenge because there were about three and a half million cases known throughout the world. But the Carter Center started working on this. And we knew how to eradicate it because if it could be cut off in one small community, it was gone. And so we worked village by village. And in 2015, it had been reduced from three and a half million cases to 22 cases. And the Carter Center is continuing to work on this. And our goal is to eradicate this disease from the earth. Diseases. But we've also worked on areas of peace as well. And President Carter in the early years would lead our delegations to work on election monitoring. First in Panama and in other places in Latin America and then in places throughout the world. And as of 2016, the Carter Center has done more than 100 election monitoring missions. We've continued to work also in conflict resolution, working in places like Haiti, North Korea, Sudan, numerous other places where President Carter has gone in and worked with the sides to try to talk them into peace. He also has been an active author. He has now written, as of 2016, 29 books. And in 2006, he was elected to the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame. As a former president, he's won numerous awards. The most prominent was the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002, which he won for his efforts for peace and for his efforts uh, on behalf of the Carter Center. He also, and Mrs. Carter, won the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest award given to uh, a civilian in the United States. He's received numerous honorary degrees and other awards and is given great honor throughout the United States and the world. Welcome to this, our final episode in Season 9. Uh, we've started out looking at President Gerald Ford, then our own congressman in South Carolina, John Jenrette, who was a huge star for a little while in the 1970s and was the first member of Congress to endorse Jimmy Carter for president. Uh, and this episode, we're going to close out the entire season looking back on Jimmy Carter's 
career and life after he left the White House. Because while it's, uh, you know, President Carter comes under a great deal of, of criticism, some justified, some not, for his single term in the White House, uh, it's hard not to look at him as arguably one of, if not the greatest, former president in American history for all that he did, uh, the good works that he did with Habitat, with humanity. I think the, really the only argument that could be made uh, that uh, for a former president who did great things would be Herbert Hoover in the 20s, from the 1920s uh, to 28 to 32, after the Great Depression. Herbert Hoover, of course, was involved with feeding a lot of Europe after World War II. And he had done a lot of those kind of works prior to his time in office. And I think probably Richard Nixon, who was one of our greatest presidents, of course, but also uh, as a former president, was so involved in foreign policy and uh, and traveling the world and bringing reports back to presidents and giving advice and ad- advising presidents uh, in his time afterwards. So it, I really think it's probably those three, if you want to talk about who are the great former presidents in American history. But it again, as you're going to see in this, Jimmy Carter did so many good things, and his wife, Rosalind Carter, so many good things for so many people in need after they left the White House, whether it was Habitat with Humanity, which I really admire because I have none of the skills that it would take to build houses. Uh, so I admire the people who do that and uh, eliminating the guinea worm in Africa. And, and just there's a long list of things that he was involved with that uh, would hold him in good stead. Uh, as uh, we look back on his his life after the presidency, I will give you a note. We we're putting these shows together in February, February twenty sixth, exactly. Uh, the president at that point, former President Carter, had uh, gone into hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia, and so uh, I, you know we're not in a position to do a memorial episode to President Carter. Uh, as we had done with so many other folks through the years on this show. But um, in a way, this is this is that. This is a tribute to him, this final episode of Season 9, where you're going to get to uh, to see uh, some of the reporting that has covered his, his uh, life and career after the presidency and give you a feel for, like I said, the enormous amount of good works that he did do as a former president. You don't often hear a U.S. president, past or present, talking about his mistakes and shortcomings in office. But you will hear it tonight from the 39th president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. It turns out that during his four-year term, President Carter kept a diary that he's now publishing, along with an often harsh critique of his own performance in the White House. His tenure, which I covered as the CBS News White House correspondent, was tumultuous. The problems he confronted kept mounting, and people wondered if he was cursed by a dismal economy, poor relations with Congress, and a nightmarish standoff over 52 Americans held hostage by Iran. After just one term, he was trounced by Ronald Reagan. Well, now Mr. Carter takes a look back at those years in excerpts from the diary he dictated into a tape recorder seven or eight times Virtually every day, he was president. The story will continue in a moment. 
in his office at the Carter Library in Atlanta. Can I look? Yeah, you're welcome to look. The former president, now 85 and still flashing his famous smile, showed me some of the 5,000 pages that make up his diary. When American citizens get this book, what do you think is going to surprise them the most? I think the absolute unadulterated frankness of what I had to say. Uh, I'll just give you one example. Take Kennedy. If there's anyone Mr. Carter fumes over in his diary, it's Ted Kennedy, his nemesis. Here's what he wrote when they clashed on health care. Kennedy, continuing his irresponsible and abusive attitude, immediately condemned our health plan. He couldn't get five votes for his plan. He drove you up the wall. I don't know if I ever got up the wall. But his comments on Kennedy are harsh, even now, after his death. The fact is that we would have had comprehensive health care now had it not been for Ted Kennedy's deliberately blocking the legislation that I proposed in 1978 or 79. And you blame Teddy for the failure. Exactly. Health care, his issue. Exactly. It was his fault. Ted Kennedy killed the bill. Just to spite you? Is that the, what you're... That's the implication. That's the implication. He did not want to see me have a major success in that realm of uh, American life. It still smarts that Kennedy ran against him in 1980. Back then, he poured his resentments into his diary in frustrated, snarky outbursts, the hardworking, born-again peanut farmer up against privileged Kennedy royalty. You write angrily. He's my age, but unsuccessful. He was kicked out of college. You know, you could have left that out of the book. Well, I didn't try to conceal anything. I tried to put out exactly how I felt. Well, you went at each other. Well, you know, I felt like he went after me. I was the incumbent president. I didn't go after him. But he decided that he was going to replace me as a Democratic president. When he turns to focus on himself, he admits his critics had a valid point when they accused him of micromanaging and that he went too far with his no-frills, anti-imperial approach, as when he carried his own bags and wore cardigan sweaters in the White House. You may have depomped a little too much. One of the most unpleasant things I, I, I was, that surprised me was when I quit having Hail to the Chief played every time I entered a, a room. But there was an outcry of condemnation. So he had to reverse himself. This is our master bedroom. This is the apartment he stays in at the Carter Center when he's in Atlanta. By the looks of it, he's a no-frills ex-president, too. A Murphy bed. And this is it here. No. Yeah. The former president of the United States. And the first lady. And the first lady sleep on a Murphy bed? Absolutely. Oh, my God. 35 acres here. The president and Mrs. Carter spend time here with their children, 12 grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. You are going to the Shanghai Wall's Fair? Absolutely. Oh, it's so cool. Yes, that's Amy, who was nine when she moved into the White House, now 42 and pregnant with her second child. I asked her and her brothers Chip and Jeff about life at the White House. The worst thing was a little bit of intrusion by the press, but we had Amy to take all the scrutiny, you know, so Amy got that, we didn't. You got a lot of it, Amy. I did. I, you know, I really, it's hard for me to remember that. Now, breaking her silence after 30 years, Amy says about her time in the White House. There was a house full of people. All the people who worked there were so wonderful. 
I was young. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun? Who didn't think poor little Amy was unhappy back then? She seemed bored reading books at state dinners and was hounded by the press her first day at public school in Washington. The little girl looked woebegone. Like, I look so morose, but I think that's just an accident. I was more worried about the first day of school oh, in yeah. a new place. I didn't think I even noticed the press being there. But it's a, overall a very happy time for me. But not so happy for her father, who now admits he alienated too many members of Congress, whom he described as a bunch of juvenile delinquents. He tells about some Democrats who approached him with a quid pro quo. We'll vote for your bill if you'll appoint our choice for U.S. attorney. And here's what you write. You said, I told them in a nice way to go to hell. Uh. <laughs> okay. Almost deliberately antagonizing them. There were times when uh, a Congress member would try to blackmail me or when a Congress member would make a demand that I thought was inappropriate. And, uh, and they would say it's the normal give and take of, of, getting, of getting legislation done. But you <clears throat> considered it blackmail. In a few occasions, yes. Congress thought he was sanctimonious, and he writes that he made things worse by proposing too many unpopular bills, like the treaty to give back the Panama Canal and lifting price controls on gasoline. Even Mrs. Carter told him he was doing too much. And he would always say to me, suppose I don't have a second term. And um, he was right, because he got an awful lot done for the country. He was not a failed president. That image of a failed president haunts the Carters. How do you think you got into this big mess? The public will have to judge how big a mess it is. The country was in a big mess with gasoline lines and double-digit inflation, and he seemed powerless to deal with it. He writes that his own loyalists asked, can you govern the country? And he tells about a brutal meeting with his cabinet. They told you that you had an image of weakness. You write that they told you this. Sure, a did. lack of esteem in the public eye. And they just beat up on you. I think they were telling me that uh, the public image of me was that I was not a strong leader. That I should not only arouse uh, support from affection, but also from fear. So did you change? Did you start to operate from fear? <laughs> Maybe a little bit more than I would have earlier. He tried inspiring the country with his so-called Malay speech, but it came off as lecturing Americans about their wasteful ways. Too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Then talk about everything that can go bad going bad. The actions of Iran have shocked the civilized world. Iran captured 52 Americans and held them hostage for the entire last quarter of Carter's presidency. There was an attempt to rescue the hostages, but it had to be aborted, and people began calling on Carter to bomb Tehran. He refused. We went through four years. Uh, we never fired a bullet. We never dropped a bomb. We never launched a missile. Because of your religious views? That's part of it, because I felt that our country should be, as a superpower, the champion of peace. And some people will, will criticize that, have criticized sure. that attitude, as saying that in Jimmy Carter's time we didn't look as strong, we didn't look like a superpower. There's no doubt that usually 
a president's uh, public uh, image is enhanced by going to war. That never did appeal to me. Carter argues that despite the image of failure, he actually had a long list of successes, starting with bringing all the hostages home alive. He normalized relations with China, brokered a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, deregulated railroads, trucking, airlines, and telephones, and his energy conservation programs resulted in a 50% cut in imported oil, down to just 4.3 million barrels a day. Unfortunately, now we are probably importing 12 million barrels a day since part of my energy policies were abandoned. Well, and you built solar panels on the roof of the White House. That's right, which were ostentatiously removed as soon as Ronald Reagan became president. He wanted to show that America was a, a great nation, so great that we didn't have to limit the uh, enjoyment of life. And the public seemed to like that better. And they liked so, well, your message, was, which was, we have to be limiting. That's right. Uh, America responded to that quite well. But when all is said and done, and many will be surprised to hear this, Jimmy Carter got more of his programs passed than Reagan and Nixon, Ford, Bush 1, Clinton, or Bush 2. I had the best batting average in the Congress in recent history of any president except uh, Lyndon Johnson. And yet, as I say, there's this sense that you were a failed president. I think I was identified as a failed president because I wasn't reelected. The lesson, getting a lot of legislation passed, even when it's significant, is not enough. A lot of critics of yours when you were president say that you've been a fantastic ex-president. You hear that all the time. <laughs> I don't mind that. You like that? <laughs> I don't mind, yes. President and Mrs. Carter devote their lives to fighting disease in poor countries and resolving conflicts, as when he recently obtained the release of an American held in North Korea. It's been a life of good works and good reviews. So this is the Nobel. In 2002, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts at global diplomacy. But he was called undiplomatic when he broke the code that ex-presidents don't criticize their successors. About Reagan, you said, if I had been president for four more years, we wouldn't have had a resurgence of racism and selfishness. Now, that's pretty pointed. That's an ouch. Yeah. I don't remember when I said that, but I can't deny that I felt that way. But are you suggesting that he stoked racism? No, I, I'm not. When, but that's what that kind of suggests. But there may have been times when I was too outspoken in criticizing an incumbent president. I can't deny that. And that's probably why he's had frosty relations with other ex-presidents. He chided Bill Clinton over Monica Lewinsky and called George W. Bush the worst president in history. And when George Bush Sr. was in office, Carter wrote a secret letter to the U.N. calling on the Security Council to vote against the resolution to go to war against Saddam Hussein. To write and ask U.N. security members to vote against the United States. I also sent a copy of the same letter to President Bush. Well, I'm sure he loved reading that. Well, but did you go too far? I felt very deeply about, about the fact that the war was not necessary. So you don't regret that? No. And this is where we live. <laughs> it's been 30 years since the Carters moved back to their old house in Plains, Georgia. He has said they left Washington in despair. Did either of you ever miss Washington? I didn't. I did. Oh, you did? <laughs> really? 
When they're here in Plains, they both work on their books and on keeping in shape, though he is no longer the physical fitness fanatic he was as president when he jogged up to 40 miles a week. Still running? I had to quit running when I was 80 years old because my left knee began to swell up. It was as a result of an injury that I suffered when I was 70 years old on the ski slopes. Now, if you happen to be in Plains, Georgia, you just might catch a glimpse of the former president and first lady swerving along the back roads in their latest form of exercise. Yeah, but it's a tricycle, Mr. President. You're on a tricycle. They call it trike, yeah. <laughs> it's been a good life. You know, the folks in Plains, you know, they don't ever think about calling me anything except Jimmy and Rosa. Some of them call you Mr. Jimmy. <laughs> well, yeah, some of them do. In fact, some of the little tiny kids uh, call me Jimmy Carter, and if they are Baptists, they probably call me uh, Brother Jimmy. Of course, he is former President Jimmy Carter. But if you visit him at home in Plains, Georgia, you could be forgiven for thinking he's just an unassuming retired gentleman, whiling away the days in his garage workshop. Only this setup has an unusual history. When I came up in the White House, the uh, cabinet officers and uh, and my staff took up a collection to give me a going-away present when I was involuntarily retired from the White House. And so uh, the, the present was uh, a completely furnished wood shop. It's here that Carter, now 81, pursues hobbies like woodworking and winemaking. For some reason, I had the impression that you were sort of a teetotaler. No, my wife and I really enjoy wine, particularly excellent wine, like some of this. <laughs> He also dabbles in oil painting, but once again, there's a story there. I really got started painting uh, two or three years ago when I wrote a novel um, called The Hornet's Nest, and, and we were searching for a cover for my book, so I decided to paint the cover. <laughs> Only you would write it, the novel and paint the cover, too. <laughs> and it turned out pretty well, yes. Now his paintings sell for up to $250,000. So do the pieces of furniture he handcrafts. Well, this is the last piece that I made. In the and if you'd like to own a Jimmy Carter original, well, this armoire will be auctioned off next month. But Jimmy Carter will keep none of the money for himself. Profits from all his artworks go to fund the Carter Center. Because no matter how much he loves his hobbies, his true passion is charitable work. Here in the U.S., Carter and his wife, Rosalind, are known for building houses for Habitat for Humanity. But overseas, the focus is on the Carter Center's work in 65 third world countries, promoting democracy, human rights, economic development, and health. We have transformed the lives of, I would say, millions of people, primarily in the poorest and most destitute and forgotten communities in the world. Just give me an idea in the last year of some of the places that you have traveled, because it's a pretty amazing list. Well, we have. We uh, conducted our second election in Indonesia, which brought that country into the democratic fold, the largest Muslim country on earth. We've been to several countries in, uh, in Latin America. Uh, we've been to Ethiopia twice, to Ghana, to Liberia, to Nigeria. Just this past week, Carter traveled to the Middle East to monitor the Palestinian elections, which he deemed completely honest, completely fair, completely safe, 
and without violence. Jimmy Carter. President Carter's humanitarian efforts earned him the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. It was especially sweet because, as he said, Jimmy Carter did not leave the White House voluntarily. But now, the credibility he established over the years has been a major factor in propelling his latest book, his 20th, by the way, to the top of the bestseller lists. The book is called Our Endangered Values, America's Moral Crisis. You have said that you were a little hesitant, you were a little worried about writing the book. No, I did it with some trepidation, some hesitancy. And no wonder. Carter is highly critical of current White House policies, especially the decision to go to war in Iraq. Some of the top advisors of President Bush, in my opinion, had a strong inclination to have a war in Iraq even before President Bush was elected. You say, um, with false and distorted claims, this administration misled the U.S. Congress and the American people into believing that Saddam Hussein had somehow been responsible for the dastardly attack on September 11th. Um, that's a pretty tough statement. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that it's a true statement. And uh, I was very careful in the book not ever to criticize President Bush. You do single out Vice President Cheney in your book. Well, sometimes I think the Vice President has been somewhat careless with the truth. Yes. Jimmy Carter is well aware that there are plenty of critiques of his own presidency. I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear that I... A one-term Georgia governor, he was elected in 1976 in the wake of Watergate and Gerald Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon. As president, Carter engineered the return of the Panama Canal, launched the Departments of Energy and Education, forged the SALT II missile treaty with the Soviet Union, and presided over the Camp David peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. But he often seemed ill at ease in the job. The economy floundered, but what really doomed his presidency was when Iranian radicals took over the U.S. embassy in Tehran and held dozens of Americans hostage for more than a year. Jimmy Carter was defeated by Ronald Reagan in 1980. You've been quoted as saying that you think maybe you've had a better ex-presidency than presidency. Well, that may be true. Certainly my reputation uh, has been better in the post-presidential years than maybe in the White House. But I think that when people look back on what we did in the White House, uh, I think there's a lot there uh, of justifiable pride. So you don't look back and say, oh, I wish I would have been a better politician. I wish I would have gotten reelected. Well, that would have been nice. I wish I could have gotten the hostages out earlier. I wish that... Uh, that the Democratic Party hadn't been split down the middle. I had a major Democrat run against me for, for re-election, as you know. Senator Kennedy. And, and so forth. But um, no, those are not the things that I worry about now. In fact, he jokes that if he had been re-elected, he and Rosalind might not have started the Carter Center. He eagerly gives her equal credit for everything he has achieved. It, it just seems like you all have just an amazing marriage. <laughs> What, what, is, what, what keeps it so great? Well, uh, if we go till July, it'll be 60 years together as man and wife. And we'd learned a long time ago how different we are from one another. And we 
also saw that uh, despite the in inevitable incompatibilities during the day, we resolved many years ago not to ever end a day without being reconciled. So and you always kiss each other goodnight? Yes, at least. <laughs> uh, there are a lot more questions I could ask about that. <laughs> the Carter clan now includes four adult children and 11 grandchildren. Yes, daughter Amy has grown up. And despite his father's disappointments in politics, the president's oldest son, Jack, is thinking of running for the U.S. Senate from Nevada. And you would be for that? If he yes, I would, if he wants to run. I haven't, uh, I mean, it's up to him. It's a tough job to run against an incumbent senator. And what's ahead for Jimmy Carter, that unassuming retired gentleman who happens to be an ex-president? More good works, more book writing, painting, furniture making, and an abiding faith in his fellow Americans. So you're, you're an optimist about where this country's going. I have total confidence in this nation and its people, yes. The Carter Center is sharing today that the former president has now entered home hospice care. There has been an outpouring of love across the country and in our area. The 98-year-old is the oldest living president in U.S. history. Jimmy Carter's family now asking for privacy. CBS 2's Jennifer Bisram is live in the newsroom with the latest. Jennifer. Jessica, former President Jimmy Carter's family says he entered hospice care in Georgia earlier today. Here in New York, his Habitat for Humanity family is sending him love and thanking him for his leadership and dedication to service. His first project was in 1984, right here in New York City uh, on 6th Street. And uh, it was the first time he ever engaged with us. Former President Jimmy Carter's world leadership didn't stop at the White House. He's been a face of Habitat for Humanity since the 80s, and it all started here in New York City. New York City, very, very honored to be the, the location of the very first Jimmy Carter work project. 2013, we were in Brooklyn and Queens, and um, and so he's been here three times. So uh, he is, uh, he's Made a, he leaves a real piece of himself with us in New York City. Karen Haycox traveled with the 39th U.S. president as he worked on homes all over the world after his presidency. He's funny <laughs> um, and he is one hard worker. He's the first one on the site in the morning and very often the last one to leave by the end of the day. According to the Carter Center, the 98-year-old former president is now in hospice care. A spokesperson told CBS after a series of short hospital stays, the oldest living U.S. president in history decided to spend his remaining time at home with his family and receive hospice care instead of additional medical intervention. By all accounts, he's home, uh, uh, he's home and comfortable and eating ice cream. The one-term governor of Georgia, U.S. president from 1977 to 1981, humanitarian and author, was also awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. There's a lot of exciting things to be done now in this, uh, you know, wonderful phase of my life. He's now surrounded by his family in a home full of love. He would ask you to care for your community. He would ask you what you might do to help your neighbor. He would ask you to think about your city and how you can strengthen us and keep us stronger. That would really be a tried and true way to honor President Carter when, when he passes.
and his family remains by his bedside. Habitat for Humanity here in New York says they are praying for peace, strength, and comfort for the Carters in the days ahead. We're live in the newsroom tonight. Jennifer Bisram, CBS 2 News. As we all are. Jennifer, thank you. The outpouring of support for former President Jimmy Carter after the 39th president's charity, the Carter Center, announced that he is beginning at-home hospice care. Carter, who is 98, is the oldest ever former commander-in-chief. He served one term as president from 1977 to 1981. Here's ABC's Faith Abube. Tonight, an overwhelming show of support for America's longest living president after Jimmy Carter's foundation revealed the 98-year-old is terminally ill. Members of the Maranatha Baptist Church in Carter's hometown of Plains, Georgia, lifting up the man they affectionately call Uncle Jimmy in prayer. We do lift the Carter family, Lord, to you. Lord, especially Mrs. Carter. For decades, Carter taught Sunday school lessons here. We don't have anything to dread after death. Until his declining health kept him from the podium. Well wishes have been pouring in from lawmakers, dignitaries, and everyday people since the Carter Center announced yesterday that after a series of short hospital stays, the 39th president has decided to spend his remaining time at home with his family and receive hospice care instead of additional medical intervention. Generally speaking, someone may choose hospice care for themselves or a family member if they have six months or less to live and are moving away from traditional medical treatment to instead focus on care, comfort, and quality of life. Carter has suffered many medical setbacks, including a cancer diagnosis in 2015. He suffered multiple falls and underwent hip surgery in 2019. They took 14 stitches in my forehead, and uh, my eyes black, as you notice. But uh, I had a number one priority, and that was to come to Nashville to build houses. But even through his health battles, Carter seen here giving back at a Habitat for Humanity build. His charitable work with the organization, humanitarian and international peace efforts, helping cement his legacy, even outshining his years as president. This was one of his last public appearances, the annual peanut parade in his hometown. His wife, Rosalind, of 76 years, right by his side. And President Biden and the First Lady in a tweet this afternoon sending their prayers and love to Jimmy Carter and his wife. The president said in part that he and Dr. Biden admire the strength and humility that the Carters have shown in difficult times. Lindsay? So many prayers for both of them. Faith, thank you.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.